And now, coming to you from the Gershon Room, high above the Good Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf coming to you from the heart of the award season on the Good Street Podcast! Podcast, here we are in spring, here we are, at least it's in the States, it's still April Fool's Day, it's still Easter, it's still the day after the Hugo nominations, it's still a week after the BSFA Awards, uh, so this is this is the beginning of, I guess, the... The season, as they call it. I mean, baseball has even begun in the United States. Well, I don't know about the season, Gary, but it's certainly the awards season, isn't it? I mean, good Well, that's what I mean. The awards awards blossom in the spring like tulips. (laughs) Except it's the fall here, which which might, you know, be kind of... Yeah, meaningful as well. But I mean, I know of at least five sets of awards that were uh, announced or presented or whatever over the weekend. Um, Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of variations in there. I know that our good friends over at the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and whatever else they've extended that acronym to mean now uh, are coming up on completing the voting for their Nebula Awards. So Mm -hmm. the Writers Club are going to put their, their, their annual prizes out. So that's great. Um, and then, you know, everybody else is too. But before we get you know, well, dive into awards too much, let, let's start with a, how have you been? I haven't seen you for a couple, we haven't spoken for a couple of weeks. No, we haven't for a couple of weeks, and it's been a, it's been a quiet, but um, no, not productive at all. It hasn't been productive at all. Uh, I've been going to movies and watching television and reading some interesting books, but by and large, this is the period of time when I've come, I'm still decompressing from my first convention of the year, which is ICFA, mm-hmm. and getting ready probably for something I'll be going to at the end of this month uh, uh, in, in California, which is an academic convention. Uh, so uh, all I've been doing is trying to think up topics for essays and, um, and, and, and reading some very interesting things. I mean, what am I reading right now that's interesting? Uh, is, uh, I, I, I should... If it were that interesting, I'd remember the title right now, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I read a book that you have already, or I'm reading a book that you've already read and reviewed for uh, the magazine, uh, and that is the new Simon Ings book, The Smoke, which mm-hmm. is a very interesting book from a very interesting author, uh, and one that's worth sort of tracking down. I also note that around this time, we've talked about it before, Kelly Robson's book has come, you know, has come out. God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach, which is out there for people to buy, purchase, own, and love. Um, And, you know, lots of other things. My own best science fiction and fantasy of the year, volume 12, is out in the shops. So people could be buying that to make sure that I can afford to live in a house and and, and continue to podcast. So, you know, that would be be nice. Absolutely. And and, uh, Sam Miller's Blackfish City is uh, out very shortly now, I believe. I know, I'm waiting for Book Depository to ship it to me so I can read it so that we can talk to Sam, because I'd like to read it before we talk to Sam. It's, it's very interesting, uh, and it's, it's, it, it may be a trend. I mean, between this and Annalie Newitz's Autonomous, I think we're in for a period of Arctic science fiction, because both of these novels have significant action set in uh, sort of post-global warming northern Canadian cities. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, and and, and, and I, I'm sure they came up with the idea separately, but it's it's one of those things where you, you think that going back to maybe all the way to Michael Chapin's The Yiddish Policeman's Union, it's time for Arctic science fiction. 
Um, well, I don't know if it's time for yeah. Arctic science fiction. Then, of course, you, you overlook a major work, Gary, because you're not mentioning Paul McCauley and his uh, oh. Austral from last year. Well, and that's you know, south. Yeah, you're closer to the South Pole, but I was. But it's still the, it's still the same basic kind of a thing, which it's is still our, yeah, it's, it still is. Um, it's a variation on uh, climate fiction, really. I mean, the whole thing which my good friend and your good friend uh, Kat Sparks is working on for her PhD, the whole you know cli-fi thing, and the impact of global warming on culture as well as everything else. And so, when you look at books like Austral, like Autonomous from the sounds of it, like Blackfish City, like a lot of short fiction being written now. I mean, uh, Kat uh, Valenti's really terrific, The Future is Blue, and some other stuff. You right. will find there's a lot of work that is now responding to the future impact of cli- you know, climate fiction. This is why, uh, over the weekend, uh, Kat Sparks was arguing, or putting forward an argument, or part of an argument, to me that um, she thinks science fiction is actually a subset of horror, uh, rather than its own thing. I'm not actually super convinced. I can see how it applies. You know, I think my, my, my response to that was that I think that science fiction is a tool for analyzing situations and that the current short-term future that we see contains enough that it is horrific that it makes science fiction look like horror. I think that's true, and I think that it's, it, it's an interesting argument I haven't heard it quite before. My problem with that argument is that Horror is a completely different way of defining a genre than science fiction is. I mean, horror, as you've said before, has to deal with effect, affect. So you have mainstream horror, you have mystery horror, you have science fiction horror, you have fantasy horror. Uh, but it cuts across all genres in a way that science fiction doesn't. Uh, mm. So, that of, of course, there's something to that. But uh, one of the counter-arguments for that uh, is really one of the nominees for, for the Hugo Award this year is uh, is Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, which is not, it's not even a dystopian novel. It's a weirdly optimistic novel about how New Yorkers might survive. Well, that's because and, you're talking about a writer whose ma- ma- you know, principal mission is utopian. You know, he's always going to filter through that lens. That's the, you know, the very nature of what he does. So, of course, when he you know, writes again, and he's written before, but when he writes again about climate, he's going to write about it from that sort of perspective. That's only to be expected. Of course, you're skipping well, ahead because you're talking about the Hugos. We're not ready to talk about I'm, the Hugos yet. We'll get that in a minute, but I like the idea of horror as, I, I like the idea of the relationship between science fiction and horror because it's clearly always been there. Uh, mm. And it's always interested me, for example, that uh, the, the handful of uh, Lovecraft stories that are clearly science fiction stories, the, uh, uh, what, the, the, the um, Color Out of Space and the uh, um, the, one, the one that the Guillermo del Toro really wants to film at the Mountain of Madness. Madness. Yeah, yeah. Nobody talks about those in the history of science fiction. They only talk about them in the history of horror fiction. Uh, if you look at movies, I mean, you look at the people who are followers of the Alien franchise, I'm going to say half of them are horror fans and half of them are science fiction fans, and it satisfies uh, each group equally. It's because they're two different modalities. Sure, but, but let me ask you a question and interject, you know, interrupt your, your uh, train of thought for a second and ask you this question. Is the way science fiction and horror match and overlap in written fiction, written storytelling, fundamentally different from the way that it interacts as visual fiction? Because, generally, science fiction as a visual genre 
tends to mm. simply be set dressing and visuals rather than science fiction concepts. Whereas science fiction as a written thing tends to be about analysis. So my feeling is that written science fiction is more, that, that has horror elements is more science fiction, whereas visual science fiction that is horror is more horror. I mean, let, uh, Alien is more of a horror movie than it is a science fiction film, even though it's a science fiction film. Um, uh, any one of the, um, you know, the, 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 the assorted uh, climate fiction novels that are around tend to be more science fiction than horror, I think. I think that's true. I, I would argue that, um, that in, a, in an abstract sense, you're correct that science fiction tends to deal with solving a problem which may express itself as horror, but the solution to the problem is still at the center of the story. My argument that a, 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 the, the most famous science fiction horror story as a short story is probably still um, John W. Campbell's Who Goes There, which is, in Campbell's original formulation, very much a puzzle-solving story. It's a, it's a horrible monster. It's, by the way, we're in the Antarctic again, which is interesting. It's an absolutely terrifying monster, but you follow a very rigorous scientific research procedure to figure out who, how to identify who that is. And by the time John Carpenter remakes the film of that, he's returned to that science fiction premise. So Carpenter's film is both a gross-out horror film and a John W. Campbell's problem-solving science fiction story. There's no reason why you can't do that. Sure. You know why we keep coming back to the Antarctic, by the way, or the Arctic? I think mm. uh, it's because that uh, for, for Campbell, it was, the, it was wilderness and the unknown. Yeah. And now it's frontier. I think that's true. I mean, there's a sense in which reading um, not only those stories, there were a bunch of horror stories back in the 30s and 40s. There was one uh, called In Amundsen's Tent, I mean, things based on what happened to the Amundsen expedition. It was like a, setting something on Mars. It was just a completely hostile, uninhabitable environment where you could mm -hmm. have an isolated group of people facing an unknown horror, which, by the way, is also at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, so I think, to some extent, you're right. Now that we're looking at uh, having to colonize previously uncolonizable parts of the, uh, of, of the globe, now it becomes frontier literature. I think that's a good point. But in the same sense, uh, moon stories were once seen primarily as frontier literature, and so were Mars stories. Yeah, sure. And now um, you know, the, the current batch of moon stories particularly are very much frontier stories like immediate frontier stories, or colonization mm -hmm. stories. That's what um, you know, Ian McDonald's you know, sort of super clever sort of lunar series is. It's what I imagine uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Moon, which is coming out in October, will be. You know, yeah, um, certainly the moon and the other is part of that. Very much. But um, at the same time, uh, the moon is a harsh mistress was basically treating the moon as the American colonies during the revolution. True, true. And, and, and assuming that the, um, the occupation of the solar system was an inevitability, and that seems to be, and we've talked about it many times before, that that seems um, to be the assumption now going forward in, in, in the science fictional future that you may never get the sort of, you know, the federation of planets kind of thing and zipping mm -hmm. around at multiple times the speed of light and encountering, you know, a, a, a galaxy full of just spiffy aliens, but we could fill the solar system with all kinds of interesting things 
and life could be rich and strange and diverse in, in those sorts of ways, as laid out in, not to sort of belabor the, you know, the octorial point, 2312. It's interesting to think that maybe, to get back to the Arctic thing, that maybe uh, you're right, this idea of colonizing uh, the far north and the far south uh, is a represent, represents a kind of collision or combination of the classic science fiction frontier narrative, traditionally set on the moon or Mars or Titan. There's a movie out called Titan now, which looks to me like a film version of uh, Fred Pohl's Man Plus. But that's a parenthesis. But maybe that putting together uh, environmental fiction, uh, re- recognizing the changes to the Earth environment, with the idea of, um, of colonizing, let's say, Antarctica, maybe what results in novels like uh, Paul McCauley's Austral, for example. Well, I, uh, I, okay, maybe. I think it's more, there's two things happening at the, same, at the same time. I think some things that are happening in the real world or are projectors happening in, happening in the real world are being fitted into possible science fiction narratives. So the, the frontier narrative, which is essential to Star Trek, which is essential to space opera, whatever else, that is being pushed into the southern reaches, if you like, not just you know, to steal a title from Jeff Vandermeer for a minute, the southern reaches mm-hmm. of the southern frontiers. However, the reason the southern frontiers are so attractive is because they're a practical reality, you know, we are looking at some of these models with, you know, if the world, you know, sort of heats by three or four degrees centigrade, well, that's uh-huh. exactly where we're going to be pushed. You know, they will uh, warm up, they will melt, they will green, and as other places desertify, particularly around the equator, people will be mm-hmm. driven north and south. So they will, practically speaking, become inhabited frontiers and then inhabited countries and new nations and whatever else. And that seems very likely. I, I think it's become much more a universal trend than it was before. I mean, there, again, there was a period of um, uh, science fiction in the 50s and 60s and 70s that almost dealt with the reverse of that. There were new Ice Age fictions. There was Kobo Abe's novel Ice Age 4. There was uh, John Christopher's novel The Long Winter, which was actually published under a different title in the UK, I think, than it was in the United States, where the, another Ice Age drives people from temperate climates to the tropics. Um, and that was simply speculation on the idea that Ice Age may come again. But it wasn't based on any ongoing climatological data the way uh, these new novels are. So to some extent, I think you're right. To some extent, I think this is a kind of recognizing a near future probability for the Earth and combining that with a kind of traditional yeah. science fiction uh, trope. But I have a question because... You've mentioned the term climate fiction, and the climate fiction gets tossed around a lot these days. Uh, uh, certainly, Stan- Kim Stanley Robinson has been identified as a cli-fi writer. What do you think of that term? Hmm. I actually, yeah, look, I'm not troubled by it. I'm trying to become less troubled by various things to do with um, n- names and titles and everything else. I don't like cli-fi. I find that really unpleasant as, as, as a name, if, you know, if nothing else. But, I mean, whether you call it climate fiction or science fiction, I mean, the, the real question, I suppose, is whether you think one is a subset of another in some ways. Like, is climate fiction always science fiction? Probably not. Um, is, is science fiction, you know, does science fiction cover, encompass all climate fiction? Similarly, probably not. 
Um, Probably not. But but I suppose any 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 story that is told now that predominant that is predominant predominantly driven by you know the narrative is driven by climatic change the actual background of the narrative would fit within climate fiction you know whether it is well, a romance or whatever else well, i mean yeah and, and i think the idea of climate fiction as as a kind of broad uh, a broad paintbrush uh, covering a lot of territory is reasonable there are mainstream writers certainly like uh, barbara kingsover or carolyn c who have written novels that are, have been almost invisible to the science fiction community that are clearly influenced by by climate change. By uh, uh, in, in the case of the Barbara Kingsolver novel, a bunch of monarch butterflies showing up much farther north than they should have been, and a lot of. But the, the novel doesn't sur, that doesn't survive on the basis of its speculation. That's a background for the novel. Um, yeah. Cliffhanger, yeah. frankly, is a term that I hate, but I'm not very fond of the term sci-fi. I guess part of it is my old academic bias that. Fiction ought to be called fiction and not fi. I don't, I don't like fi. I don't like any kind of fi. I don't like semper fi when the marines sing it or whatever they say. But, but the idea that there is a climate, the climatological fiction is a theme that covers a lot of areas. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, yeah. And, and I think we're only going to see more of it because, as has been evident, as I've said before here, in the short fiction that I read, the one thing that is absolutely instrumental in the background of just about everything is um, climate, you know, the climate as a narrative driver. You see it again and again and again and again now. And until such times as we come up with the next thing and until it's not the, you know, not the nightmare that we're all facing, I think it's inevitable. I mean, uh, well, I, mean that's fair I, think, I, think it's, I think it's been treated as inevitable for, for 15 or 20 years now. I mean, I, you, you go back to I can think of science fiction novels from uh, at least a decade ago. That we there's a Stephen Baxter novel, for example, we refer to the the Florida archipelago. In other yeah. words, it just becomes a given that uh, that huge chunks of the world are going to be underwater, and not all not all those novels use that as a central uh, plot device. It's simply something given. If uh, it seems to me that science fiction writers today have more or less tacitly agreed. That if you're going to set a novel in 2050 or in 2100 uh, or in 2150, you're going to be depicting a world which is largely more inundated than it is now. And that doesn't mean that the novel has to be about the inundation or has to be about an awful warning. As a matter of fact, most of the climate-related fiction I'm seeing now isn't really awful warning fiction. It's not what they used to call proleptic fiction. It's yeah. just assuming, yeah. okay, this is the future we're going to inherit and we're going to have to deal with it. Well, don't forget that there's also a, you know, uh, an exoticism about it as well. I mean, the, the, you, you're going to get to redefine the appearance of the world in a way that makes it fresh for story, even if there's a lot of bleakness and darkness in there as well. I think that's true. Uh, and, and I think that's something that some writers, and again, we keep coming back to Stan Robinson, have seen for decades. I mean... Uh, Robinson's Venice Drowned is what a story from thirty years old by now, I think. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. Yes, that that or even more. Yeah, and a very very fine story. And yeah, there's just and there many examples across the years. But, but hello? hello, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just suddenly sort of crossed things and came to a dead. I'll edit. Try and remember to edit that little bit out. 
Okay, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot in the whole clim clim climatic fiction area. And prob probably what we should do if we're going to talk about it is actually get Kat on because she will go on about it at great length because she's immersed herself and is just finishing her PhD as we speak. And, you know, there's a lot to say. But let us Listen, switch I, her... Sorry, yeah. what are you saying first? I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I've, I've talked to Kat about this not for uh, over a year, but it's a great topic for a dissertation and just speaking as an academic, I wish more people would do dissertations on interesting things like that. Yeah, but rather than boring things like the other, right? So right. this was the single greatest awards weekend of the year so far. Everything uh -huh. seemed to get announced. There were at least there was two sets of awards here in Australia announced. There were a whole batch of big major nominees announced in the US. There was a set of British awards. And I thought we might just sort of Although we will not, we cannot possibly have time to go through all the, the nominations and, and winners and everything else. But we might just do a quick skip through before we sort of end up at the Hugo Awards, which are the sort of, the, the, I think, the final major announcement of the weekend. And start right, with okay. the first chronologically, as, as sort of the, the sun went around, you know, the, the planet went around the sun, was uh, the Aurealis Awards, which were announced two days ago. Uh -huh. here in Perth, Western Australia, at the Australian National Convention. And they present awards across an, ar an array, like about 12 or 14 different categories, best children's fiction, graphic novel, adult short story, and so on and so on. And some wonderful nomina you know, nominees and winners, Tansy Rayner-Roberts, who's not currently published a lot outside of Australia, but is well-known as a podcaster and as a writer and as a commenter and whatever else, won four Aurealis Awards for various works. Excellent. Uh, girl, for, including uh, a novella, Girl Reporter, and I think a, a collection called The Fictional Mother, which won the award for excellence. Um, and very, very cheery. I mean, the, sometimes I must admit, I get a little bit skeptical, but the science fiction novel category this year for these awards was actually really excellent. Uh, and any one of the five or six nominees would have made a fine winner. But the book that won, From the Wreck, by Jane Rawson, which was published by Transit Lands, was a terrific book. Really, uh -huh. really interesting, beautifully written, gnarly kind of a book, which I'm sure we could get James Bradley on here to rant about for about an hour and a half. Really worth uh -huh. looking down to find it. When we talk about these books, I know, and by the way, congratulations for your, for your own award there. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, which is which is well deserved, but this is an award for Australians, which means that some of the novels mm. and some of the anthologies are not yet widely available outside Australia. Is that correct? That is correct. I don't know, for example, if there's currently an Australian, or sorry, an, an American edition of From the Wreck planned or not, but it is well worth seeking out. Uh, and I would recommend that everybody goes to the Aurealis Awards website to see the rest of the, of the nominees. It's also on File 70 and 770 and Locus and Tor. Um, mm -hmm. some, some fine, fine winners you know, by, by people like Kate Forsyth and Kim Wilkins and Callie Black. And, and you know, Garth Nix won a short story award, which is great. So some really interesting things. And this is one of the, this is the Australia's juried award, right? It, it, it's uh -huh. cl closest to the, um, the world, well, the world... I guess no, close to, close to the World Fantasy Awards, I suppose, though they don't yeah. have a public voting thing. This is where there's multiple juries, you know, I think about 12 juries who vote on all the various awards. I'm no doubt getting some small facts. But there's a lovely ceremony yesterday, and yes, I did win for, um, or at least my anthology, Infinity Wars, was presented the thing, 
it's very clear. I did not win the book. Book was recognized. That's so really the authors who, who won. But that was nice. And that was the first award of the weekend. You were being recognized because not all the stories in that book are by Australian authors. Well, so that I mean, book won because you put those stories together. Oh, sure. no. yeah, 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 no, no. I'm not, not giving myself credit, but I think it's really important sometimes when you get to things like Best Collection is not an award for the writer per se, even though they receive it. It's that group of stories that they've written. And so, yes, yeah. my editorial efforts on that book are being recognized as well, but the winner really is Infinity Wars in this case, or it would have been Echo Punk, or it would have been you know, one of the other anthologies that, that were nominated over, over the weekend. And I think it's really healthy to, remain, to keep that in mind, because even though I'm fortunate enough to, to bring the, the statue home and it sits in my, in my study and I feel very proud of it, Nonetheless, it's the book itself that was nominated. Yeah. One, the next set of awards that came out chronologically, and at least here in Australia, seemed to get um, stepped on, if you like, because they came out overnight. Uh, uh -huh. But by the Aurealis, which preceded them, and the Hugos, which followed them, were the absolutely wonderful and fascinating uh, results for the British Science Fiction Awards, which were presented at their mm -hmm. EasterCon or FollyCon in Harrogate. Uh, on the 31st of March. Now, they, they, set, they, they only present four awards, Best Artwork, which was a tie between Fikto Nye and Jim Burns, both of who do wonderful work. Mm -hmm. The Best Nonfiction Award, and this filled me with happiness and joy, and I'm sure filled you with happiness and joy, was Paul Kincaid for his book Ian M. Banks, published by University of Illinois Press and edited by Gary K. Wolf. That was something I was very, very glad to hear. I was thrilled to see the manuscript come in. I've thought for years that Paul is one of the two or three finest critics in the UK, probably two or three of the finest SF critics around. And this was a major book on a writer who deserves a major study and amazingly enough hadn't had one before this. There's been anthologies of essays and that sort of thing, but, but Paul's book is clearly written, it's accessible. For, I, I, I'm, I'm promoting it now, I realize I edit the series that it's part of. Still, if somebody is wondering what the big deal is about Ian e and Banks, this is the place to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is clear. It is well-written. It is well-researched. It is thoughtful. It is comprehensive. It's very well done. And so, hugely deserved this award. Anne Charnock received the award for the best short fiction for her story, The Enclave, published as a novella mm. by Newcom Press. Uh, and then I was deeply delighted. One of the books which I enjoyed most during 2017 was Nina Allen's smart, interesting, just gnarly and uh, complicated uh, The Rift that had come out from yep. Titan during the year. Uh, and one of my favorite books of the year as well. It's one of those books for you. Uh, it, it's a terrific science fiction novel, unless it's not a science fiction novel at all. And you still <laughs> we debate that for hours afterwards. Yeah. But, I mean, they had a strong ballot, and, I mean, I will be honest and say that the Rift was also on my own personal Hugo ballot as, as a nominee, and I, I rated amongst the top five science fiction novels of last year or even a little higher than that. So I was delighted to see that book get recognition. And more than anything, what I hope is that readers the world over who listen to this podcast, and I know that even though that, you know, there may not be tens of thousands of you, 
that you'll consider going and picking up that book because it well deserves it. Now, the Tolkien Awards were uh, nominees were announced over the weekend too, um, and I'm, talking, I'm, to, I'm skipping ahead because I know how long to, we're going to take on Hugo's. The Tolkien Society yeah. Awards shortlist was nominated, and I, this, this is for obviously Tolkien, Tolkien like artwork, books about Tolkien, whatever else. I strongly recommend people go look that up. I'm not going to go through everything about it, but there was a, an array of interesting and worthwhile work that came out yesterday. And then uh, last night, the other Australian uh, awards, the uh, popular award that Dittmars represented, uh, Tansy Ran Roberts again did well with her, her girl reporter. Uh, Thorea Dyer won for best novel for her uh, fantasy novel, Crossroads of Canopy, which came out from Tor and is available widely to everybody. And I strongly recommend everybody goes and has a look. Uh, Janine Webb uh, won for her story, A Pearl Beyond Price. Cat uh, Sparks and Liz Gribbs Echo Punk Anthology won Best Collected Work. Artwork went to Lewis Morley. Uh, Bruce Gillespie, the indefatigable Bruce Gillespie, who next year will have been publishing SF Commentary for 50 years, uh, received the uh, Dittmar for SF Commentary. Stephanie Lai got got Best Fan Writer. Sean O'Mara, Best Fan Artist. And the William Mathling went to Ambien Kumali. I'm going to pronounce this name badly, Gary. I'm going to take Ambien Hoi Melina for reflecting on indigenous worlds, indigenous futurism, futurisms, and artificial intelligence, and but it was published by Twelfth Planet Press. So like a bazillion great nominees. Mm-hmm. And then in amongst it all, down came what I'm going to for, for, for just just for simplicity and hopefully amusement sake refer to as the big one. The 2018 Hugo Awards were nominated. Were, were announced, Gary, in, in, in various amusing ceremonies and other things with people with with you know mohawks and all that. And it's a good ballot. It's a good ballot. I've not spent a lot of time on uh, online looking uh, to reactions to it. I mean, basically, of the works on it that I know, I don't disagree with anything. There are a few things I certainly would like to have seen on the ballot that didn't show up there. Uh, and the other thing that struck me is when we were talking a couple of uh, weeks ago, or several weeks ago, I guess, about nominating for the Hugos, is there, uh, if this is supposed to be a science fiction and fantasy award, is there a... I don't want to say the word bias, but a tilt towards science fiction. And it seems to me this is very strongly, uh, it's a good ballot, but it's a very strongly science fiction-oriented ballot as opposed to fantasy. Yeah, well, yes, it is. I think it is very much very strong, particularly when you look at the, um, the longer fiction categories. There's a strong focus on science fiction at this point. I mean, obviously, as we've discussed before, these awards are for science fiction and fantasy. And some openly fantastical works are nominated, and you know, clearly worthily so. But it's mostly a science fiction ballot, which pleases me, if nothing else. I mean, it's just a personal thing. I am, although that you know, sort of, perhaps starting at, with with the big one as they would jest at the ceremony, the, the best novel. Yeah. I was delighted with with the, the list. My own my own. Hugo Ballot added one or two different books. I mean, I particularly liked Annalee Newitz's Autonomous, which I was disappointed not to see recognized. I was, sur- I was surprised. Uh, my bigger surprise was not seeing Autonomous on this ballot. Yeah. I mean, actually, now that I look at it, only one novel that I nominated made the final ballot, even though I'm very happy with the list that's there, and that was New York 2140, which probably, oddly enough, more than any of, anything else on the ballot at all, I was most concerned about making it or not because I think it's such a substantial book. 
And I do think that the field every now and again takes Stan Robinson for granted. And I'm delighted. Uh, no, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, one of the problems with... Uh, it's a, not a problem, I guess, from the point of view of Stan Robinson's career, but so many good novels come out one after the other, and this is one of the most interesting, solid futures, and one of the most different futures that I've seen in recent science fiction. And and, and this, along with some of the other uh, nominees as well, seem to be uh, moving away from the kind of I don't know, comfort zone dystopia that used to get nominations altogether. You're right. Stan is, a, is, is essentially an optimistic utopian writer who thinks we will be able to fo- solve things. But there's a lot of that sort of thing going on in, in some of the other nominees, not all of which I've um, read, of course. Uh, the, the big news, I guess, in terms of people who want to tot up records is whether or not Nora Jemison can actually win three in a row for each volume of a trilogy. There's that, or whether Anne Leckie can win for another one, another book in the ancillary universe. Right. Um. You know, uh, I mean, it's heartening to see Yun Ha Lee, who's only on her second novel, be up for the Hugo a second time. That mm-hmm. sets a bar for her series, and she has a really interesting young, young adult novel due out in January. Um, I wouldn't normally be attracted to this, but James Patterson has a young adult young adult series james patterson presents and one of the novels in that series is from 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 yun Lee, and it looks really interesting okay this is not computing at all um, my 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 brain is 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 sizzling at the moment james patterson who i have read and james patterson who has written some more or less science fiction and james Patterson, who is a very generous a wonderful person in terms of supporting libraries is not the kind of fiction that I associate with Yoon Ha Lee in any way whatsoever. No, but I mean, that's because you know James Patterson and I know James Patterson, the writer, not the reader. Mm. And he does have a a history of basically supporting careers at their beginning and helping them out when he can. I mean, he seems to be very philanthropic and open about that sort of thing, from what I can tell. He seems to be a very decent person, absolutely. But I mean, just just actually, we should do this. The six nominees for the Hugo Awards for Best Novel are The Collapsing Empire by John Scalzi, mm-hmm. New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson, Provenance by Anne Leckie, Raven Strategen by Yoon Ha Lee, Six Wakes by Mer Lafferty, and The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemison. All but one of them are part of a series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan Robinson's book is, is, is a standalone title. Uh, five of the six are science fiction. I would need to check on the Mer Lafferty because it's the one book I, I need to read in the series as yeah. to whether, you know, sort of whether it's part of a series or not. I'm not entirely sure, and I should be, so I'm feeling a little bit embarrassed about that. But um, there's, you know, it, it, it's a really good, strong-rounded group. It's, it's a good list, and, 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 and four of the six are published by Orbit, who, who deserves some congratulations as well, and I know you've had good relationships with them as well. Uh, Orbit uh, are fabulous. So well, there's, there's bit, yeah. I mean, there, it, well, what it goes to show, actually, is that... Yeah, Gary? I, it, I, it's interesting to me to look at the publishers, because you have basically Orbit, Solaris, and, and Tor represented. Tor with only one, with the Scalzi novel. But then when we go into the next category, Tor.com becomes dominant. But then they're different companies, so... Well, um, they are, they're yeah. still in the Flatiron building. For the moment. Um, 
it really is a tribute to the work that uh, Tim Holman has done at Orbit, that they mm -hmm. are producing high-quality and popular, interesting science fiction and science fiction fantasy that is doing well and being recognized in the world. Um, I think it's, it's wonderful that Solaris are, and I hope that continues their publishing the, the final Yoon Ha Lee book in that trilogy this year, and then I think they're also publishing a new novel from Derek Kunskin, the, Kunskin, the quantum uh, magician, which looks really interesting. I think uh, interacts with or something like that interacts with science fiction, um, and they're also doing I think two new books by Dave Hutchinson after their success with the uh, Europe series, the Forced Europe book, and another one I believe. So, but you were mentioning, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, 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 go ahead and finish what you were going to say. I was going to ask no, you. No, I was going to go on to a novella. So. What okay, well, I, wanted, I was going to ask you, what were you disappointed not to see on the best novel ballad? I was disappointed not to see Austral by Paul McCauley there. I think it's a major work and deserved to be nominated. Uh, Paul's mm. often overlooked. I was disappointed not to see The Rift by Nina Allen nominated. Mm. I was disappointed not to see The Moon and the Other by John Kessel nominated. I think any one of those, and Autonomous by Natalie Newis, any one of those would have been very worthy nominees, and, and, and not completely on the I agree. This, this I, 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 had those, this, yeah. I, I, I had those on my list as well. Uh, there are some novels I was not surprised to see, since, since the ballad is so skewing towards science fiction, I was not surprised to see that John Crowley's Ka is not on it, even though I think that was possibly the major fantasy novel of the year. And the others that I would like to have seen recognized in some form tended toward fantasy. Uh, the Alethe Burard's House of Binding Thorns, even though she had a no novelette nominated in that same world, uh, Daryl Gregory's Spoonbenders, I liked Karen Tidbeck's uh, Matka, which I knew was a long shot. I liked uh, Victor Laval's The Changeling, which was, again, all these are fantasy novels. Uh, so this is the sort of thing where I think that there may be a distinct... Uh, difference between the, uh, the the Hugo nominees and the World Fantasy nominees. Most of the ones that I just named, I would be more disappointed to see them omitted from the World Fantasy ballot. Very much. And I would be stunned if Carr isn't nominated, for example, given that would be both the quality of the book and the, the acclaim it's received. Um, but, I mean, I do think this, this ballot at least suggests that the Hugo community, even if they're aware that fantasy works may be nominated, they actually are preferring science fiction titles, at least when you overlap everybody together. So that's interesting. I think that's true. Yeah, I agree. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, it, it, it may be that this sort of uh, mitosis is going on where science fiction and fantasy are separating back into the Hugo Awards and the World Fantasy Awards as two distinct things. Uh, even though, you're right, the Hugos technically include fantasy, but for the last two or three years, they've very much tended towards science fiction. Yeah, yeah. I was very happy with the short fiction categories. I mean, when it comes to best novella, uh, first of uh -huh. all, a shout-out to Irene Gallo and Lee Harris at Tor.com Publishing, who must have had a very happy afternoon, you know, given that of the six nominees, I think five of them, were published originally, or is it you know, five? Originally, were published by Tor. Yeah, All except Sarah Pinsker's. Uh, yeah, sorry, from Montana, yeah. yeah. Um, probably the highest profile stories that were nominated were Binti Home by Nettie Okorafor, 
and down mm-hmm. among the sticks and, and bones by Sean and McGuire. Sean and, uh, is following up a, a very, very successful story in that world previously, as is Nettie, I think won the Hugo the, last year. Wouldn't be shocked mm-hmm. to see it to be the front runner for this year. Though the Murderbot story, All Systems Read by Martha Wells, and this is a series of, of novellas which has seems to just have reinvigorated her uh, profile in the science fiction field, mm-hmm. um, and are just acclaimed and loved by all sorts of people I know. Uh, real, real sort of science fiction, science fiction, if you know what I mean, core science fiction. Um, so All Systems Read, which is terrific. Uh, the one uh, that wasn't published, and then there were, and then there were N1 by Sarah Pinsker, which is a terrific story, and I know many people think it's the novella of the year. Uh, J.Y. Yang's The Black Tides of Heaven, and Sarah Gailey's sort of really quite, quite unlikely story of American Hippopotamus's uh, River of Teeth. A fine batch. I mean, I had other favorite novellas of the year, but this is mm-hmm. a fine batch. You know, there's some that I'm sort of sorry didn't make it. I really wish they'd made it, but I'm happy with these. I'm, uh, I'm, I've not read all of the novellas, the, the two which I hoped would make it, and one doesn't surprise me because, again, we're, we're leaning toward science fiction. One, obviously, was Ellen Clages' Passing Strange, which I think Very was much. still her best adult work. And the other one which surprised me that it didn't make it was Dave Hutchinson's uh, Acadie, uh, which I thought was just terrific, solid science fiction. Uh, and in a very classic tradition, and also from uh, Tor.com, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, for some reason that story didn't get the profile it deserved. It wasn't the most optimistic about the science fiction dream, and that might have uh, weighed against it, but I liked it very, very much. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was terrific. I mean, I was also so sorry... Me take this, to quickly, the... no, I'm sorry to see that um, Sylvia Morena Garcia's novella uh, didn't make it as well because it's terrific. She had a major one out okay. during the year. Anyway, you going to say something? I was going to say we're ready to move on to best best novelette. I am so pl- I mean pleased with this. First of all, four of these stories are in my year's best, which means that I'm really likely to agree with this very much. I also bought one of these stories originally and edited. So there's. Children of Thorns and Children of sorry, Children of Thorns, Children of Water by Elliot de Bodard, which relates to the novel you were talking about, was done as a PR thing and then published in Uncanny. There's Extracurricular Activities by mm-hmm. Yun Ha Lee, which is a terrific hard science fiction novelette from Tor about political games in space opera space mm-hmm. and everything. Really well done, really smart. I would say that I acquired an editor, so take it that was Pinch Fault, put Fault Salt. Suzanne Palmer's, sorry, yeah? The secret, Go ahead. Uh, Suzanne Palmer's The Secret, the secret Life, Life of, of Bots is, one of, a, is a, one of a pair of stories from Clark's World that readily, easily stand amongst the very, very best of the year. Secret Life of Bots is about... And, and also, we should say something about this. Is, uh, I, I've, I've seen some comments online from people my age and older complaining about, I don't know, not complaining, but saying that the new science fiction world is beyond... The Secret Life of Bots is, seems to me as a kind of classic fiction idea. It's very clever. It's very well done. Yeah. And it's a very traditional science fiction story also. Very, very much. I mean, absolutely a, a very a, a classic kind of science fiction story. Exactly the kind of thing that could be published in Asimov's 30 years ago. Or with exactly. very little tweaking in, you know, Campbell's Astounding 50 years ago. I mean, it's more modern than that, but still. It's more modern, um, it's, but still. 
Uh, and it's an engaging, I mean, I'm just, I'm, she's a terrific writer. And then uh, Veena Jumin Prasad. Now, Veena Prasad is a new writer from Singapore. I think she only mm-hmm. just went through Clarion uh, last year or the year before. And she had two new stories out you know, this year. And I think both of them made it onto the Hugo ballot, which tells you a lot about the impression she's making. A series of stakes is a Clarksworld novelette uh, that has to do with the genetic printing of artificial stakes and yes. the ramifications in the story. Great stuff. Really well done. She's one of the... Completely unexpected and one of those ideas that... Uh, this is one of the things I, I always enjoy when I find these stories. They haven't read all the best novelettes. Who would have thought about printing stakes as a, as a topic for a science fiction uh, story? I mean, it, it's... Printing stakes is something we're going to be doing. I, I don't know. Maybe they're doing it already. Uh, and it just struck me as a, as a very original and very obvious kind of idea at the same time. Like, when I was reading the story and I thought, how come no one else has thought of this? And that's yeah. always a nice feeling to have when you're reading a story. And the ballot was rounded out by K.M. Spara's uh, Small Changes Over Long Periods of Time and Sarah Pinsker again. Uh, with Windwell Rove, a very, a very strong novella from a novelette, sorry, from Asimov's, one of the very few uh, nominees this year. I think there only are two to come from a print source, a, pr- a print magazine, yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. Best short story yeah. is terrific. I mean, there are two of my favourite stories of the year of any length in this category. Mm-hmm. Carolyn M. Joaquim's Carnival 9 from Beneath Sith the Skies, which is a steampunk science fiction story of sorts uh, about clock... Well, in fact, it's actually like clockpunk science fiction. You've read the story. It's clockpunk. I mean, I'm not sure... I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I read it as science fiction at all. I read it as mm. a kind of uh, magical uh, toys come to... You know, in, in, in one sense, it's a very old idea, toys come to life. It's mm. done in a kind of steampunk context, and clock punk is a, possibly a good word for it because that's ambiguous, but uh, I, I, I read that very much as a fantasy story. Yeah. Uh, it's all, the, you know, the other, then there was uh, Clearly Lettered in a Mostly Steady Hand, a really lovely piece by Fran Wilde. Fran's been writing some great short fiction around the place at the moment, uh, having you know, just finished, I think, her updraft trilogy for Tor. Yes. And is, has done a great job with this. Vina Jimin Prasad's other story on the Hugo ballot, Fandom for Robots from Uncanny, which is great. Then there's The Martian Obelisk by Linda Nagata, one of the top two or three stories of the year. Extraordinarily good. Linda often gets overlooked when people think about the best science fiction writers out there right now, but she she stands amongst them. She's consistently doing very... And and again, uh, she is again, in many ways, a traditional science fiction writer in the Martian obelisk is a it's a very moving story in a number of ways but again it's uh, in many ways a traditionally conceived extremely well executed science fiction story exactly um, probably one of the most interesting nominees on the ballot for a non-literary reason is Sun Moon Dust by Ursula Vernon anyone who mm-hmm. was either at or got to view the Hugo Awards last year saw Ursula Vernon's Hugo acceptance speech and it was one of the most memorable and interesting Hugo acceptance speeches I've ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, she, set a, she set a standard for herself, and she, she's doing great work. And then Rebecca Roanhorse, who's, been, who's new and has just got a novel coming out, or just out, I think, in fact. I've been a terrible person. There's a new novel out from maybe Saga, I think, in the last really? month. 
and she's up for Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM from Apex. And it's great stuff. Great, great stuff. Let me, what, what, let me see if I can find out this novel because I feel like you're, you're going to hear me fluffing around in the background because okay. you know, some things I only have digitally gary, which means I actually have to open my, my bag and get my Kindle out and then go looking for it. Otherwise, well, what, I, well, yeah, well, what you're doing, I mean, I've, not, I've not read all the short You've read a lot more short fiction than I have. I've read actually the ones that are in your year's best or Rich's hmm. year's best are the ones that I might, might tend to have read. But it, it, it strikes me also, again, this is a, the, the, except I guess from maybe the Ursula Le Vernon story, and depending on how you read the Carolyn Joachim, is that how you pronounce her name? Joachim, I would think. Joachim, okay. Those are the only two, it seems to me, are readable as fantasy stories. And as you're right, Car- Carnival 9 could be read as a science fiction story, depending on what you think of science fiction. Yeah. But by and large, it's a, it, 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 it strikes me as um, they're all solid stories as stories. In other words, there's not only a shift toward science fiction, but in a sense, there's a shift toward more traditional storytelling. Uh, the really oddball stories that we've seen on ballots in years past, which I probably shouldn't mention the titles of, no. don't seem to be here. They, 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 these are these are all solid, uh, uh, kind of classically constructed stories. Now, the Rebecca Rowan horse book is Trail of Lightning, and it's out from Saga right now, so that's worth taking a look at. Mm. I'm going to propose a few categories that we skip past, Gary, because I don't have anything particular to say about them, you know, unless you do. And the next one is best series. Well, let's go. To okay, we'll go best, yeah. best series. I have almost nothing to say about, frankly. Um, okay. It's uh, where is it? here? Here we go. I mean, these are all interesting. Of, of the ones I've read, I've not read a complete one of any of these series. I don't think. Yeah. Um, well, well, yeah. I mean, certainly. My, my first reaction to it was that, of course, Lois McMaster Bujold deserves some kind of recognition. She's won a trunk load of Hugo Awards in her lifetime, uh, but recognizing the con- continuity of her work is is certainly important. And I suspect the same is true of, 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 of the other uh, nominees as well, but I just don't think that any... I'm not somebody who follows series of novels. Uh, so I may have read, I think, one of the Robert Jackson Bendit novels and maybe one of the Marie Brennan, but I just don't know how to judge a series. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yes, I mean, just quickly, the nominees are Martha Wells, Robert Jackson Bennett, Seanan McGuire, Marie Brennan, Brandon Sanderson, and Lois Rasta Bujold from mm-hmm. various series. And, I mean, I've read and enjoyed the Lois Bujold stories and uh, not many of the others. Best related work, Gary. Very happy. Best, that best related work. I think that's very a, interesting I think that's, category. It's a very interesting category, and I think that, I mean, needless to say, I have a an interest in, in in Paul Kincaid's critical work on Ian Banks, which is a more intellectual and uh, traditional uh, critical work than most of the other things. But Liz Burke's collections of essays uh, ha, are, are stimulating. Sleeping with monsters. Uh, which came out from Octavius. There is uh, the likely winner, I suspect, is the Le Guin uh, collection of her basically blog posts, No Time to Spare, which very little of that, I mean, minuscule amounts of that book deal with science fiction or fantasy in any direct way at all. But it's, you know, it's the year in which Ursula Le Guin left us, and so I cannot imagine 
people not voting on that basis. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very, I, was, I was impressed by uh, some of the essays, especially by students in um, Alexandra Pearson, Mimi Mondal's uh, Luminescent Threads from 12th Planet, 12th Planet Press. Um, I'm not sure that it was, it, 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 essentially the book is a love letter to Octavia Butler. It's not going to reveal a lot about how to read Octavia Butler, what her place is, it's just about how important she was to the people contributing to the book, Indeed. which is lovely Indeed. in its own way. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not going to tell you much about how to read Octavia Butler. The one, the one thing that um, I expect might get some votes, but I don't think has much to do with science fiction and fantasy at all, is the biography of Harlan Ellison by Nat Siegeloff, which is very readable and pretty seriously uninterested in most of Ellison's fiction. Yeah. Well, you, you've, you've actually over, you've uh, ignored one book, uh, Crash yes, Override, How Gamer of the Great Gate Nearly Destroyed My Life and How We Can Fight Against Online Hate by Zoe Quinn from Public Affairs. And actually, I think that might surprise you. I mean, it I wouldn't shock it. me to see that get a lot of time, even though there's such an interesting array of, of, of options of books to look at. And normally there's not, let's be fair. That's related no, to... I, I, I think the Gamer Gate maybe in terms of the relationships within the community and the community itself, it could arguably be the most important book in that sense. Mm. Um, As I say, I I have a lot of uh, respect for Paul Kincaid's book, a lot of respect for Liz Burke's book, but from the point of view of what's going on within the community, I've not read the Gamergate book, but it sounds to me like something that needs to be said. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I am going to quietly skip over mostly because I didn't nominate these categories myself, Gary. So if you want to say anything, shout out, but if not, remain silent. Best graphics graphic story, which had six worthy looking nominees, a couple of which I've read, a couple of which I know are, po- are popular. Uh, best dramatic long form, which had some great looking uh, n- nominees in it. Best dramatic pre- presentation short form. And we come to best editor long form, where I will stop for a minute because I would particularly like to, well, I'd like to say, first of all, I'm going to tell you the nominees. Sheila uh-huh. Gilbert, Joe Monty, Diana M. Foe, Devi Pillay, Miriam Weinberg, and Narva Wolf. And I've got to say, that group of you know, five women and one man uh, have published a fascinating array of books. There's a li- the actual ballot lists what they're nominated for having edited, in effect. Oh, okay. When you look at them, I mean, like, Sheila Gilbert's, uh, you know, the books that are referenced are The Brightest Fell, To Guard Against the Dark, Terminal Alliance, and Nimbus. Joe Monty is, is, is referenced for An Unkindness of Magicians, The Moon and the Other, a book that you and I have agreed is one of the books of the year. The Stars mm-hmm. of Legion, Cameron Hurley's book, which a number of my friends strongly believe is the book of the year, and Walter John Williams' Quillifer. Diana Foe for Weaver Circle Around, Amberlow, which has got huge amounts of press. The Guns Above and Thoria Dyer's rather terrific Dittmar Award-winning Crossroads of Canopy. Davy Pillay for uh, Six Wakes, which is the more Lafferty book that's up for Best Novel. Miriam Weinberg, who's been doing a lot of interesting editorial work uh, and is the editor for Ian McDonald's Luna series, so Luna Wolf Moon, which also edited Horizon, A Conjuring of Light and Within the Sanctuary of Wings. And Nava Wolf, who I, I kind of feel is my might be in, is up for having nominated The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, which is the Dora Goss book, uh, mm-hmm. R.A. Stern's book, uh, Barbary Station, Phantom Pains, and Winter of Light and Snow. It's a really interesting thing. Very interesting to see two editors from 
Saga or both major editors from Saga nominated. Um, they're you know, getting a lot of attention. That's really good. So I'm really happy about that. I think it's true, yeah. And, and, and Novel Wolf is, in another couple of years, could end up in the category for Best Editor Short Form as well for doing these original anthologies that she's been doing for Saga. She could. And that's interesting is that one of this year's Best Editor Short Form nominees was up uh-huh. for Best Editor Long Form in past. So the nominees are John Joseph Adams, who's up for Cosmic Powers, his anthology, Light, Light Speed, Nightmare, uh, and he's also, of course, the head of JJA Books, Joseph Adams Books, and may end mm-hmm. up being eligible later. Neil Clark, who's won the Hugo a number of times before for his anthology, More Than Human Galactic Empires, the best science fiction of the year, Volume 2, and for Clark's World. Lee Harris, whose short fiction editing is done at Tordicon Publishing, who edited All Systems Red, which is up for the Hugo, Down Amongst the Six and Bones, which is up for the Hugo, Bitty Home, which is up for the Hugo, and A Long Day in Litchford. Lynn uh, M. Thomas and Michael Damien Thomas for Uncanny. Sheila Williams for Asimov's, a contribution that I think these awards tend to undervalue. I don't know if online readers pay enough attention to print sources, and so uh, I'm very happy to see her listed, and then I was fortunate to be nominated as well. I think you, and and it's a well-deserved nomination, not only for Tor.com, but for the anthologies which you've uh, been assiduously putting together until you run out of infinities. Um, but yeah. the thing that strikes me is, and, and I hope you don't run out of infinities. I, I, want I have to run out of infinities. I've done the last one. Oh, no. You, you've got to have an anthology which is called Infinite Infinities. No, we're doing Infinity's uh, End, and that's that. Okay, then you need to start on the Finite series. Finite <laughs> Science series. Finite Space <laughs> Opera. Finite Climate Change. Uh, but I, well, my observation about this, apart from the fact that they're, what you said is that uh, Sheila Williams is the only print editor in this list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's consistently been on the list. She's consistently done work for, for, for a long time. I mean, there is a sense in which um, uh, uh, Charlie Finley uh, for um, FNSF, FNSF uh, m- might make this list as well. But I wonder if this is a reflection of the fact that print magazines simply no longer reach as wide an audience as online venues do. Whether or not they do, I think the one thing that is true is they tend not to be as much part of the online dialogue because readers can't share URLs for people to go and just read the stories quickly and easily. So that's uh, yes, a factor. Obviously. Now, we're up against a real time barrier. So we might sort of forge on. There's Best Professional Artist, nominees Galen Dara, Kathleen Jennings, Bastien Lecouf de Harm, Victor Nye, John Picaccio, who's the guest of honor of the convention, and a shout out to John, and Sana Takeda. Um, all great people. There's a, there are galleries online of their work, and you should go look. Best John is, oh, yeah. I was just going to say, John has been doing some sort of heroic work in, in bringing uh, Mexican artists and Mexican attendees to the attention of the convention, and uh, he's, he's a very decent guy. I don't know all the best professional artists. The one of the people, one of the ones I nominated who is not on the list, unfortunately, is Greg Manchest, who I think did some wonderful work this year. Mm. Uh, for the uh, Timberline. Yeah. Um, and he also did the cover for Passing Strange, which which right. I, I really like. Yeah. Okay, so best semi prosine Beneath Ceaseless Skies by Scott H. Andrews, uh, one of my favorite picks for this award. I've got like two favorites. 
The Book Smugglers, uh, Anna Grillo and Thea James. Escape Pod by Murray Lafferty, S.B. Divya and Norm Sherman. Farside Magazine by Brian White and Julia Rios. Strange Horizons by a cast of thousands. Yeah. And Uncanny Magazine by Lynn Thomas and Michael Damien Thomas, which also would be a very worthy winner. I think it won last year. Uh, Uncanny. Yeah, I know. Certainly, I, I pay attention to magazines. Yeah, this, this, this is all really uh, helpful work. It's a, it's a category which I've never understood because they kept redefining it in various ways over the years. Um, but to the extent that I've listened to some of these or read some of these, I don't have anybody on this list that I would be outraged to see win the award. Yeah. Best fanzine, File 770, Galactic Journey, Journey Planet, Nerds of a Feather Flock Together, Rocket Stank Rank, and SF Blue Stocking. Uh, a shout out to all of the, the writers, editors, and people involved for those. Then there's the best fan cast, and let's start carefully with this. Um, Ditch Diggers by Mer Lafferty and Matt Wallace is nominated. Fangirl Happy Hour with Anna Grillo and Renee Williams, who we've had on the podcast. And a hater Renee for, for her Hugo nominee. Galactic uh-huh. Suburbia with Elisa Krasenstein, Alexandra Pierce, Hansi Rainer Roberts, who took home every Australian award there was, and Andrew Finch. And a shout out to GS, who are friends of ours. Uh, Sword and Laser, Veronica Belmont and Tom Merritt, and Verity by Deborah Stanish and Erica Ensign. And John's oh, a long list Katrina Griffiths, Ellen Miles, Lynn Thomas, Hansi Rainer Roberts, probably somebody bringing coffee. Lots and lots and lots of people for Verity. And then we're up as well, Gareth, which is nice. Thank you, thank you, thank you, all the nominees. It's it's well, great I, to be an again. I mean, I, 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 I uh, to be honest, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to I listen listen to Galactic Suburbia. Some and I listen to Verity. Some I should listen to the others. I suppose I should probably listen to us, shouldn't I? Well, you, no, don't listen to us. But but if you're going to listen to Fangirl Happy Hour, can we like somehow like put a, put one of those like YouTube videos of you watching Fangirl ha- listening to Happy fangirl happy hour whilst you're, you're listening oh, that would be fun that would be very interesting <laughs> not just to be amused to see you you, you listen to fangirl happy hour um there was a, one of my favorite this is a complete irrelevant parentheses but one of my favorite youtube videos from years ago and i can't remember the name of it was two young women i, I was pointed to this by stephen r donaldson mm-hmm. two young women reading aloud the entire uh, Thomas Covenant trilogy while sitting in bed. Um, and it was, what was it called? Fantasy something. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out and, and, and try to add it to our notes. Uh, and at, at some point, these people were, it was utterly bizarre. And at some point, Steve Donaldson himself showed up on the podcast in a fake beard and a wig uh, joining them, reading his trilogy, which, of course, they were never, ever going to get through in, in, in podcasts of 10 minutes each. <laughs> and it was absolutely delightful. It was watching people react to fiction while they were reading it. And I thought that was fascinating. I want to see more of that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm also going to mention, first of all, perhaps we should, I want to stop really clearly for a second. I know we've just done it on, on a rush and we're getting to the end of the, end of the episode, but yeah. thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you to everyone who nominates. Thank you to everyone who appears on the podcast. The best of the Coon Street is all the people who are there, who, who appear on it. So thank you, thank you, thank you so very, very much for that. Absolutely, I agree. Best fan writer, 
Carnestros Philepton, Sarah Gailey, who's also up for Best Novella, Mike Glyer, who's up for File 770 as well, Foz Meadows, mm-hmm. who's currently the guest of honor at SwanCon here in Perth, Charles yes. Paysor, and Bogie Takach, which I've probably mispronounced, but those are the, the Best Fan Writer um, nominees. Best Fan again, Artist. Yep. Fan Artist, Fan Artist, again. We're getting into categories where I know very little about what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Me, me too. Okay. So, Nina Ialto, Gen- Gen- Geneva Benton, Grace Fong, Maya Harto, Lacane, Sprung, Sh- Spring Shunneth, and Steve Stiles. I apologize to Spring right now for uh, mispronouncing her name. Spring Shunneth for Best Fan Artist. And then the last two, which I really want us to take a moment to talk to, so let's be careful about these. Here we go. John W. Campbell award for best new writer one of the most interesting and bestest kind of categories that that you guys have mm-hmm. the nominees are Catherine Arden for the bear, who wrote the bear and the nightingale Sarah Kun who wrote heroin complex Jeanette Ng for under the pendulum sun Vina Jaimin Prasad who wrote a series of stakes and uh, fandom for robots Rebecca Roanhorse for uh, welcome to your authentic Indian experience and Rivers Solomon for An Unkindness of Ghosts, which was one of the major books of the year. I thought so as well. As a matter of fact, I would I would not have been surprised to see River of, uh, to, to see the the, the River Solomon Unkindness of Ghosts on the best novel ballot. Uh, so that, uh, but but to be honest, uh, again, the only two authors I'm familiar with here are River Solomon and Vina Jenmi Prasad. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what you just told me a few minutes ago about Rebecca Rollenhorst, which sounds interesting. I will try to look her up before we do this. Um, but on the basis of those two candidates alone, uh, make this a strong ballot for me. Oh, very much. It's a very strong ballot. I'm not really sure exactly who people are going to go for in terms of voting. But honestly, almost any one of them would make a terrific uh, you know, sort of winner. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting the ceremony. They'll kick off with this, I assume they usually do. And I mean, as I said, the River Solomon book is terrific, and you should all look for it. All of the other stories are online or whatever else. Do go look. It's, it's, it's a really worthwhile award, really interesting. The final one is a newie, Gary. It's the second in the yeah, classic Not a Hugo series. And in the, the classic Not a Hugo series brings you Best Young Adult Book, a book that the, uh, an award that the Hugo Awards have tossed and turned about for like a decade which our own friend Farah Mendelssohn was part of the group who put this all together. So shout out to Farah and to everybody who labored in the trenches to put together a Best YA award. And here we have, we've got six nominees. Do you want me to read them out or are you going to read, read them out? Yeah. Okay. The nominees for Best Young Adult Award, not a Hugo, but probably has another name that I've forgotten, are Nedia Korafor for Akata Warrior. Terrific book. Sam J. Miller for The Art of Starving. Also a terrific book. Philip yeah. Pullman for the Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage. See previous comment. Sarah Reese Brennan for In Other Lands, a book from Big Mouth House. And also, previous comment, I mean, this is a great, great novel. This is like a, a, a world fantasy quality best novel ballot. Francis Harding for A Skin Full of Shadows. And Ursula Vernon writing as T. Kingfisher, Summer in Orcus from Sofa Wolf Press. Those are the nominees, and I have to say, they are a great bunch of nominees. It's a terrific bunch of nominees. Of the ones I've read, which are three of them, I think, um, I was surprised. I mean, the Fran Harding and um, 
certainly the the Sam Miller. But uh, I, I was a little surprised not to see a Kata Warrior by uh, that was the first one off the list, Gary. Was oh, I'm sorry, I my my list didn't print out all the way, so I'm not looking at it. Yeah, there, there's, so. there should be one, two, three, four, five, six titles, and a okay. Kata Warrior by Nadia Corfor is number one on the list. Okay, fine. It's because my printout stopped at that point, and I didn't realize that. Uh, so in that case, I'm satisfied with everything on the list because all the young adult stuff I read this year and paid any attention to has made this list. Uh, I think it's interesting that Francis Hardy is becoming more and more a central figure in fantasy and remaining somewhat enigmatic to many readers. Very much. And hopefully we'll see her at major conventions. I know she has an adult novel she's writing for Saga. Maybe uh-huh. that will help get us some, some more profile, but she's a wonderful, wonderful writer. We've been raving about her here. Most of our friends Sorry, rave about her. The, yeah, the read from, her so. so, yeah, this is terrific. So it, it strikes me as being a really strong list. I don't know what's going to happen to this award. I guess it's meant to be something like the Campbell Award in that uh, they wanted to create a category for adult books, uh, for, for young adult books, to avoid what? young adult books crowding onto the best novel category or to give recognition to young adult books which may not get nominated because there are so many other candidates. Gary, what I would say is, my my impression is, the intention of the award is to recognize excellence in young adult fiction for a field that has become increasingly vital and vibrant in science fiction and fantasy. I don't, I, I, I don't know that it has anything to do with uh, eligibility and recognition with the main best novel category. Well, the reason, I, the reason I mention that is because, again, if you go back and look at the other thing which I pointed out, if you go back and look at things like the retro Hugo 75 years ago, young adult fiction and science fiction were not separable categories until maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, I mean, essentially... Uh, the distinction between Heinlein's young adult fiction and his adult sure. fiction sure. was one of chronology. It wasn't one of, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of form. And I, I think that's, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that the young adult has become a separate thing. But at the same time, if there's a, a Francis Harding novel or a Nettie Okorafor novel that is published as a young adult novel and nevertheless deserves consideration as best novel of the year, would that be likely to happen, or is this going to be a category that drains off other potential best novel nominees? I okay. I think you can be eligible for both. Okay, that would be reasonable. Because oh, you're right. I'm sure Cheryl will let us know if I'm wrong, but I think you can be eligible no, for no, both. And even I, then, I, I, probably draining off is the wrong way to look at it. No, I'm 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 I'm, I'm terrified of getting corrected by Cheryl because she's always right. But this is not a Hugo Award, so this does not preclude anyone from being nominated for Hugo Award. Is that right, Cheryl? Please let me know. Anyway, so that is the Hugo Awards ballot. Barry, Gary, it will be presented at uh, the San Jose Worldcon in August in a ceremony probably oh. on the Saturday night, as they usually are. I will be there. You will be there. Um, I will be there. Fun will be had. It, it will be a, a fine time. I have my plane ticket. I have my hotel reservation. It's all good to go. I mean, there's a few other things happening as well around the, the way. Um, it was announced over the weekend that I will be one of three guests of honor at SwanCon here in Perth next year. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I will be joined by actual guests of honor. Uh, and by that, I mean actually interesting people. 
Annalee Newitz and Charlie Jane Andrews, which I think is a fabulous choice. I think that's the guest of honor. I think everyone will have a huge time. So if you're anywhere near sort of the Southern Hemisphere over our way, make a point of coming to SwanCon. You can get it at SwanCon2019.something or other. And I think memberships are cheap right now. Um, I know Charlie Jane and Annalee will be fantastic. They have a new podcast out right now. There are two episodes mm-hmm. in. It's called Our Opinions Are Correct. I am actually resisting with all my strength putting out a, a response podcast called Our Corrections, Our Opinion. Um, <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually listened to one of the podcasts because they're delightful. They were in Chicago last summer when mm-hmm. uh, Annalie was promoting Autonomous. Yeah. And uh, they're absolutely delightful to talk to. And I think that uh, I've, uh, you're right. Anybody who's near Perth should go to, should go to the convention, except that nobody is near Perth. Unless you're going to Perth, nobody gets near Perth. Perth isn't near anything. Well, actually, that is no longer, practically speaking, quite correct, Gary, because Perth has increasingly become a key jumping-off point for all kinds of places on airplane routes, particularly as the 787 Dreamliners and A380s have been online. And now you'll find that, yes, uh, people who are going to the UK are going via Perth, and yeah, but that missing airliner is still somewhere near Perth, or under the ocean, right? I mean, it's you, you guys have a tendency to disappear airplanes. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's us, not not you guys in that that spot off. Okay, right. Well, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you want to go. Annalie and Charlie Jane are two of the most delightful people to listen to and to hear on a on, on a on a podcast on a convention, whatever. So I, I agree that if I, if I could get to Perth reasonably, I'd try to get there myself. Yeah. And look, um, I have said all along through this year that I was almost certainly going to go to Baltimore for World Fantasy. And something happened this week, which honestly, I don't want to be disrespectful, was actually more exciting than winning the Arialis Award or getting nominated for the Hugo Award. I got a ticket you to Springsteen on Broadway. Okay, that's I, I, I admire the devotion of your fandom. I uh, see. Uh, I to, to quote something actually that um, our friend from Subterranean Press, Bill Schaefer, said to Harlan Ellison when we did a podcast together. I admire your commitment to obsession. <laughs> hey, look, Bill Schaefer's going too. <laughs> really? Okay, fine. So, so, I admire. Okay. Cheryl would be there, I bet, if she could too. I would bet. Bruce Springsteen in an eight hundred seat theater on Broadway. How could you not go if you love Bruce Springsteen? And since Baltimore was kind enough to bring me within a two and a half hour train ride, that's yeah, where absolutely. I'm going. So yes. So for me, Broadway and Baltimore definitely. So Sounds- we'll also look at look have to look to our world fantasy plans. But until then, we have rambled. 15, 20 minutes past our limit, I could cut half of it out and everybody would be happier. So, can we wind up, my friend, and move on? Uh, We've been talking about awards, which everybody expects us to talk about at great length, so we're we're fine. We haven't alienated... If we've alienated any listeners, we did that two years ago, so we're safe. And I'd also say that, I mean, if this doesn't sound too much, looking at these ballots and these winners and everything else, science fiction fandom, fantasy fandom did good this year. I think so. I, I think we're back to normal. I mean, there is a sense uh, which a couple of people mentioned online in, 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 in Twitter or Facebook that, that maybe the kind of political upheaval that seemed to be a crisis two or three years ago doesn't seem to be an issue anymore. 
Yes, very mm-hmm. much so. We're back to just picking out books that we like, and that's... Oh, oh there's that's one thing we mean. didn't mention. We'll have to come back to it. Huh. There was a big thing that happened this week, and, and we didn't mention it. Are you embarrassed, Gary? Am I embarrassed? What, what, what are we talking about? This week, Locus Publications shipped the 50th anniversary issue of Locus Magazine. Today, which, which, which is today in the United States, it's still April 1st, April Fool's Day, Easter, and the 50th anniversary issue of Locus Magazine, uh, which we will be celebrating at Worldcon in San Jose in, in August. But yeah, actually, we are, we are, not we, but the magazine is 50 years old, I guess, as of this month. Well, yes, yes, I think so. I mean, I thought it had started up in August, but obviously it started up earlier. So, so yes. So, I, probably the, the most apt note we could end on for this podcast and for that piece of news is a, a shout-out to the late, great Charles Brown, whose magazine continues on. Fifty years of it. I agree. And uh, to that, I would add a shout-out to the current local staff, which is uh, especially Liza Groh and Trombi, who have, get, who have kept the magazine going for almost a fifth of its lifetime since Charles left us. And on that note, I'll talk to you next week. Next week we shall have another fun podcast and I will look forward to it. So until then, this has been the Good Street Podcast. <laughs>